You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas, you've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Chris, and today I am so excited to be interviewing Dr. Aaron Curry. I know I said in our polar bear pod, Aaron and I go way back, uh, back to uh, when we both lived in South Carolina. But uh, I just want to say welcome, Aaron. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just like so excited, especially of all the people I get to interview, you're our first one. So (laughs) no pressure, none at all. (laughs) Okay. So quickly, you know, let the listeners know if you want to just give us a brief background. Um, I know you grew up in Philly. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, where you went to school, what kind of got you into conservation? Sure, yeah. Um, yes, I born in Philadelphia, born and raised there. Um, for my undergraduate, I went to University of Delaware, which was just about 50 miles down the road from Philly. And there I majored in animal science and uh, I minored in, I double minored in both wildlife conservation and psychology. Um, that time I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to work with animals. I knew I was interested in conservation issues. Um, I thought I might want to get into studying animal behavior, which is why I picked up the psychology minor. Um, I knew I didn't want to go to vet school, but I didn't, I didn't really know what jobs were out there for someone with an animal science degree. Um, so it was really my last semester at University of Delaware where I ended up having to fulfill um, one of my academic requirements was a reproductive physiology class. And I heard this class was really hard. I didn't want to take this class, um, but it fit into my schedule and I ended up taking it. And I was just amazed at learning about reproduction, all the ins and outs and intricacies and all the different hormones that orchestrate the reproductive processes. Um, So it was kind of like a a light bulb went off for me. I knew I wanted to study reproductive physiology and I wanted to tie that study to wildlife conservation. So at that point, I started looking into graduate schools and it was it was difficult to find a graduate school that would let me get hands on experience with wildlife. Um, So I ended up looking into different agriculture programs because I knew I could kind of learn the techniques and the tools that I would need to study wildlife. Um, but I'd be able to get my hands on a lot of animals and get really good at those techniques. Uh, so I went to um, Clemson University in South Carolina for my master's. And for my master's degree, I studied beef cattle reproduction. Mm-hmm. And then I stayed on at Clemson for my Ph.D., um, but I switched species and went a little bit more molecular. And at that point, I began studying pig reproduction. So right. my dissertation was the microRNAs in pig um, gametes and pre-implantation embryos. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll be honest with you. You're, I remember when you were studying this stuff, and my brain hurt so bad. <laughs> you and me both. You. Oh, God, microRNAs. I was like, what is that? Uh, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. 
No, I was going to jump in real quick. It, it's interesting because you're right. Like, you know, I you had an animal reproduction. Angie and I kind of talk about that using horses and stuff as models. And there just is not – and we talk a lot about money. And there's not a lot of money in there for exotics. So training right. graduate students, you're right. Like, our domestics are some of our best species to learn from. Right. Yeah, one of the, um, when I give talks to uh, college age students, one thing they always ask me is, you know, what, what would you recommend if I want to pursue a career like yours? Mm-hmm. Um, and I say, don't be afraid to practice on domestic species. If you have to work with lab rats, if you have to work with domestic cats or, or beef cattle, you know, you can learn all those tools and then hopefully apply them to a species that really needs help. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're great because uh, we know a lot about them too. So they're really, right. really useful. And like the work we're doing, you know, Angie's, doing with horses as a model for rhinos because they're so closely related and so yeah no that's great you know can you talk about how i i know i know your story and i love it but how you got involved at cincy sure um i had heard of um crew which is the center for conservation and research of endangered wildlife um, just because of my interest in wildlife conservation. And as I was finishing up my PhD, I was looking for postdocs. I was hoping to get a job in wildlife field, either in a zoo or uh, maybe working for the government for Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, but I saw uh, this postdoc position posted from Crew, and the, the job description was kind of vague. It said I, the candidate would be working with scientists on one of the signature species projects. And I knew that Crew worked on rhinos and mm-hmm small endangered cat species, and I was definitely interested in working with either of those. Um, Then in my phone interview, I found out that they were starting a new project on polar bears, and I had never thought about polar bears before, but I was like, hey, you know, that sounds really interesting. It's definitely something I'd be be into. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was um, offered the position. Of course, I accepted it, and I did a postdoc here at Crew um, for about three years, and then I was offered a a permanent staff position um, back in 2014, so I've been here ever since. Right. Uh, We sort of joke that you have to wait for someone to die or to retire (laughs) if you want to get a job in a zoo. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Um, Luckily, no one one died um, for me me to get that position. (laughs) But me and Angie are saying you're living the dream. You know, we we look at what you're doing, and we're just like, oh, my God, we love uh, what you're doing, and we wish we had your job. Oh, I have the best job. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Like I, in the pod on polar bears, I talked about Facebook and your pictures in uh, the, the great white North. So yeah, <laughs> definitely uh, with that. So you are working with polar bears. Is there anything else you're working with? Any other species? Polar bears are my primary focus. So I spend about 90% of my time on polar bears, but I usually have a side project going on at any given time. And my most recent side project um, was studying red panda reproduction. Awesome. And I like red pandas because reproductively they're very similar to polar bears. So they're seasonal breeders. They're induced ovulators. They go through delayed implantation or embryonic diapause, and they also experience pseudo-pregnancies. But the nice thing about red pandas is that it's much easier to get your hands on a red panda and perform ultrasounds on them to truly diagnose pregnancy um, compared to a polar bear, that is. Um, so they're, they're a really fun species to work with. Okay, so let me jump in there because I know this is somewhere on the, on the list of questions, but you made some news around the world when you had Elvis. Can you tell people about <laughs> Elvis and what he does? Sure. Yeah. One of the challenges that we face with studying polar bear reproduction is that we don't have a pregnancy test for them. So we know the cubbing rate is low. We see all the bears and zoos breeding pretty much every year. All the pairs that are um, recommended for breeding by the polar bear species survival plan, they do 
tend to breed every year, but for some reason, um, only one or two females will produce cubs. And we don't know where that reproductive process is failing. Um, so one of my goals is to develop a pregnancy test that hopefully we can then start diagnosing pregnancy and see seeing where pregnancy is being lost along the way. And then maybe from a, a management standpoint or from husbandry, um, using better husbandry practices, maybe we can go in, focus in on that time point and improve, you know, whatever it is that animal might need to get it through a successful pregnancy. Right. So we don't have a method to diagnose pregnancy in polar bears because they go through pseudo-pregnancy. So in most species, we can measure progesterone levels and progesterone is kind of the, the hormone of pregnancy. And during pregnancy, the placenta produces high amounts of progesterone that kind of sustains the pregnancy. Um, but polar bears go through this phenomenon called pseudo-pregnancy, where even non-pregnant females will have high concentrations of circulating progesterone. And we can't tell the difference between pregnant and pseudo-pregnant bears because the progesterone is essentially the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it became evident to us that progesterone wasn't going to give us much more information than we already had. So I started trying to figure out what other things in a fecal sample can we possibly measure. And I, at the same time, I was reading a, about medical detection dogs. Mm-hmm. And um, detection dogs already have some recognized roles in conservation, so they're trained to find, um, like, scat of a particular species. Mm-hmm. So if there's field researchers down in Brazil looking for jaguar poop, rather than them themselves walking through the jungle trying to find jaguar poop, they can train dogs to find this for them, That's find these awesome. examples for them. So they already have some conservation purposes, um, but more recently they've been trained to diagnose certain medical conditions. So using um, urine samples, for example, they can identify samples that came from patients with prostate cancer. Um, they can be trained to sniff blood samples and detect um, like breast cancer in females. Mm-hmm. But the one study that was really impressive to me was that they actually trained dogs to sniff breath samples, yeah. um, and the dogs could distinguish cancer from non-cancer and even cancer from other lung diseases like emphysema um, or bronchitis. Mm-hmm. So these dogs, you know, they have they live in different worlds than us. They have very right. sensitive noses. Right, right. So I'm reading these studies and I'm like, hey, I wonder if we could train a, a detection dog to diagnose pregnancy from a fecal sample because we have about 40,000 fecal stamp- samples stored here at Crew. Right. Um, and we already had samples from known pregnancies, from known pseudo pregnancies, um, from juveniles, from males, you name it. We had, you know, we have all the samples. So I started contacting some different uh, dog trainers to see if they'd be interested in a project like this. And I didn't get a lot of responses, yeah. to be honest. Um, I think they thought it was kind of out there. Um, but but a, a guy from Kansas, and he owns Ironheart Detection Dogs. Um, and, and he's a world-renowned trainer. He contacted me. He was interested in conservation, and he really wanted to help us with this endeavor. Um, and he agreed to train um, to try to train two of his dogs to diagnose pregnancy based on the fecal samples that we sent him. Mm-hmm. Um, so at first we sent samples just from um, from like male bears, from juvenile bears, bears that you know would probably be the furthest thing from a pregnant bear. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning, Elvis is only Elvis the Beagle was only presented with samples from pregnant bears, mm-hmm. and every time Elvis sniffed that pregnant sample, he would sit. That was his cue that he recognized a positive sample. Um, He was rewarded with a treat or with a toy. Um, And slowly they started introducing samples from other bears, so non-pregnant bears, males, juveniles, and then finally pseudo-pregnant bears. And um, the trainer, Matt, was reporting to me that Elvis was working at like a 97% accuracy level, so he would only sit when he smelled those pregnant samples. Right. And I'm I'm a bit of a skeptic, I guess. So I I was like, wow, 97%. But, you know, part of me... was wondering, I wonder if they're inadvertently cueing him somehow, you know, mm-hmm. not intentionally, but mm-hmm. it's picking up on a just a signal. So I 
So I drove out to Kansas, and with me, I took 12 samples um, that Elvis had never seen before, and mm -hmm. the trainer didn't know what they were. So we were blind testing Elvis. Mm -hmm. And we, we got out there, and Elvis got 100% of these samples correct. Wow. So of the 12 samples, I think I had five pregnant, and the rest were non-pregnant, and he only signaled to the five samples. Wow, so wow. I was like, you know, I think I think we got something here. Yeah. So it, not a very scientific test, I yeah. admit, but we, um, we decided we were going to offer this out. We already collaborate with all the zoos throughout North America, mm -hmm. um, and we were monitoring all the bears, any with uh, the potentially pregnant females at that time. And we sent an email out, and we said, hey, we have this, this new trial that we're doing. Are you interested in participating? You know, maybe we can tell you if your bear is pregnant this year. And, of course, everyone was interested in it, so they sent me all the fecal samples from their potentially pregnant females, and I sent them out to Matt. And um, Elvis, um, he didn't signal on any samples as being pregnant, which wasn't a total surprise because we only have one, usually one to two females that produce cubs each year. Um, however, one female whose samples we did send Elvis had cubs that year. So Elvis mm. missed those pregnant samples. Mm. Um, so we were a little bit disappointed in that. But at the same time, he really only had, you know, one chance right. at, at at succeeding or being accurate, and he missed that one. Right. Um, so we continued his training throughout the next year, and we repeated the entire trial the following year. And again, he missed a bear that was pregnant. Mm. There was one bear pregnant, and he missed that bear's samples. Um, so we started, you know, really thinking about this. What could we be doing wrong? Why isn't Elvis signaling on these samples? And what we think, um, I started talking with some, some dog trainers from the UK, and they're really into the medical detection stuff. Right. And they believe that to successfully train a dog, you need 100 unique cases of a disease. Mm -hmm. So 100 patients with prostate cancer, and in this case, we would need 100 pregnant polar bears um, to have samples to train Elvis from. Um, and we'll just never have 100 right. pregnant polar bears. So at that point, they say the, the experts say that the dogs will stop memorizing specific samples and start generalizing into a condition. Uh, so what we think is that Elvis simply memorized the scent signatures of the pregnancies he was trained on. Mm -hmm. Because if we presented him with a, a sample that he had never seen, but from a pregnancy he was trained on, he would recognize it. Right, right. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so, so he did what we trained him to do, was to, to recognize those pregnancies and signal on those pregnancies. But when it came to a new pregnancy, he, wasn't, he didn't make that generalization because we didn't have enough samples to train him with right right yeah so it's like you know he's really got to have a broad spectrum of smells that associated with so right. but still it's yeah. i mean it's still a big step forward you know and right and what it told us also is that there are there's something to those fecal samples that he recognizes because if i presented him with a sample mm -hmm. from that same bear before pregnancy he didn't signal it as a pregnant sample but within like two to three weeks of breeding he was signaling at as pregnant. So all the way through the year, you know, he was recognizing these pregnant samples. So sort of from that study kind of um, branched our volatile organic compound analysis study. So we know that dogs are smelling volatile organic compounds or VOCs. Um, so we took about 40 different fecal samples and we submitted them for VOC analysis to kind of do some comparative work to see what VOCs might be different in pregnancy versus pseudo pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm working with a PhD candidate down at Mississippi State and she's helping me analyze it. It was a pretty large data set. So she's looking for scent signatures that might be present in a pregnancy pregnant sample versus a non-pregnant sample. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So yeah, yeah. Elvis is helping polar bears. <laughs> yes, so, yeah. Elvis is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And right now, Elvis Elvis is retired from the polar bear pregnancy um, project, but now he's a companion dog to the other dogs that are in training. Oh, that's good. So he's, a, uh, he's a really great, he's a little beagle. He's got a lot of personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a, it's still a great story. And, you know, I saw that and I was like so excited uh, to see my friend <laughs> in the news. So... Perfect. 
you know, this week we're talking about polar bears. Uh, you know, in the news this weekend, uh, in the past seven days, that video of that starving polar bear has been going around, circulating. I mean, we even tweeted it out, and it's such a hard thing to see. So mm-hmm. I just generally, from your perspective, you know, you're in the know. You this, you live and breathe this every day. What's the short-term and long-term prognosis for them? Um, both the short-term and long-term prognosis is that, I mean, it just boils down to the fact that polar bears need sea ice. They need sea ice to hunt. If sea ice is not present, um, they will eventually starve. They'll lose, have decreased body mass. Their reproductive rates will go down. Um, so really without reducing CO2 emissions, um, you know, the experts predict that polar bear populations will decline um, as we move forward. Yeah, that's what, you know, it's what we kind of talked about too, and I, I kind of tied it into nutrition, that if they're not out there, and ring seals are like their number one prey, right? Right. If they're not out there on the ice eating that blubber and those fat mm-hmm. seals when they come to land, an omnivore diet is not going to support them. Correct, right. So in 2016, last year, um, it, it was estimated that polar bears got about 25 to 30 fewer days of hunting because oh, it wow. took so long to the free ice for the sea ice to freeze up last year. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, the sea ice actually froze up a little bit earlier than normal, so they were out in the ice um, by by mid-November. Um, so hopefully, they'll have an opportunity to put on a lot of fat um, this year, um, and hopefully, they'll, we'll see a lot of cubs as a result of that next year. Right. Um, but yeah, right. like you said, they they rely on that sea ice. The, the sea ice attracts zooplankton and that attracts little fish and that attracts bigger fish and the bigger fish attract seals and the seals attract the polar bears. Right. So without that sea ice, you know, it supports an entire ecosystem mm-hmm. that relies on it for, for life. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about the food web and you know how they all are related and you start taking mm-hmm. out major pieces of it and the whole thing may just collapse. So I alluded to it you know a few weeks ago you were up there can you just kind of share what you were doing i saw you driving your ice truck i called it ice truck i don't know ice tractor i don't know there yeah, that, that photo so that was a, a tundra buggy and i there just jumped go. in the driver's seat when he was taking a bathroom break because <laughs> they, they wouldn't let me drive the tundra buggy um, <laughs> so i was up at uh, churchill manitoba two weeks ago and i was actually leading it wasn't for research purposes i was leading a zoo trip up there oh cool so i'm um, a bunch of people through the cincinnati zoo we have a, a really neat travel program we take people to all different parts of the world and this year's trip was um, to churchill manitoba to see polar bears and they asked if i would lead the trip so i was like heck yeah yeah, yeah um so yeah about 16 of us went up there and we spent two days out in the tundra on a big tundra buggy and tundra buggies for those of you who haven't seen one it kind of looks like a cross between a school bus and a big um like military type of yeah. um yeah. type of machine so the tires themselves are about six feet high um but they're able to cross all the different t- um, terrain of the tundra um so we went out there and we had learned that the sea ice was um freezing up about approximately the week before we got there. And mm-hmm. they said a lot of the polar bears were already out on sea ice um, heading towards this year's hunting season, going out to catch seals. So we, they kind of warned us that we might not see any polar bears mm-hmm. when we were up there, which is disappointing to hear. Um, but our first day in Churchill, we went up and we took a helicopter ride out over the ice and we saw about 10 bears out oh, wow. there on the first day alone. So it was pretty cool. They were, you know, it's, we know polar bears, obviously they live in cold environments, they live in icy environments, but 
I was up there in that helicopter and it was freezing cold yeah. and I'm looking at these bears just traveling out to nowhere. Yeah. You know, there's no spot on the horizon. There's no shade. There's no vegetation. There's just that, you know, that internal mm-hmm. migration urge that they just need to go out there for those seals at that time of year. Um, so it's pretty amazing to, to experience that and feel what they were feeling. Yeah. Um, so the first day we saw 10 polar bears in the helicopter and the next day we went out on the tundra buggy. And um, almost right away, we saw a female polar bear with two cubs, oh, two gosh. toys or cubs of the year. Yeah. Um, and we got so close to them, we could actually hear them scratching at the ice. Um, so I guess there were some little fish that had frozen up in these shallow ponds in the tundra. Mm. So they were digging and you know, trying to scavenge these tiny little fish that had frozen. But you could see the cubs watching the mom, mm-hmm. watching what she was doing and mimicking her behaviors. Oh, gosh. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty cool. So then we saw about, um, about 10 more bears over the course of two days in the tundra buggy. You have the best job, I swear. <laughs> Angie and I, we we, uh, we volunteer to carry your equipment. I don't care how cold it is, but the next time you need to go up there, you know, I will fly back from New Zealand and uh, travel around with you because that is awesome. Oh, you're hired, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'll go back. I'll, I'll train. I'll go back to my military training. I will carry lots of stuff. Angie will just yell at me to, to go faster. Um <laughs> So you've been to Greenland too, right? No, I have not been to Greenland. No, they they, they do have um, polar bears yeah. also. So Canada, I think they have um, roughly sixty percent of the world's polar bears. Okay. Okay. Um, polar bears live throughout the Arctic Circle, so they're in Greenland, right. they're in Russia, um, they're in Canada, they're in Alaska. Um, but Canada Canada does support um, the majority of polar bears. We think again, okay. it's hard to get estimates on the yeah. species. You know, we we estimate there's anywhere between. 20,000, 26,000 polar mm-hmm. bears, but we really don't know for sure just because they're such a challenging species to study. Yeah, we talked about that. We're like, I mean, I can't imagine trying to do a census. Like you said, the one of the things you, when you were talking about how they navigate, like, I don't know, mm-hmm. I, maybe they use the stars. Like, it's amazing. Right. And they it travel, is. what, 4,000 miles? Like, yeah, they, they go long distances. Yeah. And one of the questions we often get is with, with our zoo bears, you know, is there any way that we could raise these cubs and then um, set them free, put mm-hmm. them back out in the wild? And um, it's a great question, and we can do that for some species, but species like polar bears, they need to learn life skills from their moms. You know, for mm-hmm. the first two to three years of their lives, they need to, you know, know how to make day beds and how to scavenge and how to be very patient and hunt seals. Um, those are things we just can't, at this point, teach a, a cub in captivity. Um, so we wouldn't ever be able to sort of rehabilitate orphan cubs and then re-release them into the wild for that reason. Yeah, and we, you know, we kind of talk about that too with, with I think, our leopard episode and training uh, carnivores, you know, to mm-hmm. be re-released. In the conservation center here in Florida we work with, you know, they are training Florida panthers. They have, like, this mm-hmm. whole elaborate setup that uh, they train them. But, yeah, it's not easy. It's definitely yeah. definitely tough. So yeah, that's, a, that's a good thing to ask about as far as, you know, some people may be like, well, we don't want to keep these guys in captivity. We should just let them go extinct. Like, how do you answer that? What's your opinion as a scientist? You know, we are in the sixth extinction, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for if these bears were, you know, going extinct for natural reasons, um, you know, that's sort of the natural process. But right now, global warming is a human-induced uh, phenomena. Yeah. Um, so we're the ones causing a lot of these species to go extinct. So I think it is our responsibility to also help conserve these species because of that. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And I, one of my questions was, cause in, uh, the episode that, uh, the vaquita porpoise and, 
river dolphins, I talk about how I was in a meeting and a scientist expressed the opinion that we don't have a moral obligation to save these animals, that, mm -hmm. you know, we're part of the nature. They just either need to learn to adapt or go extinct. And I mm -hmm. take the opposite view where I'm like, we absolutely have a moral obligation to interact and save these animals as much as we can because it's our fault. Right. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for you? So you're working on poop, you know? Yeah. We're, yeah, we have all <laughs> sorts of different projects going on and most of them are um, poop centric, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we are um, working with captive polar bears. It does provide some unique opportunities to learn more about the physiology of the species. Mm -hmm. So when field researchers are out studying polar bears, they can usually mobilize a bear and they can collect, you know, one blood sample and a fecal sample and a urine sample, fur, skin biopsy, all that stuff. But it's really kind of just a snapshot of what's going on mm -hmm. physiologically in that animal. Whereas with the zoo population of bears, we can collect fecal samples every day of the year if we need to. Um, right. Some bears are trained to urinate on command so we can get urine as we need it. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of zoos right now are really pushing um, voluntary blood training. Mm -hmm. um, so we have bears right now that are trained to present their paw and they're desensitized to having their paws touched and poked and prodded until eventually we can get blood samples from these bears. Um, there's a, a, the folks up at the Columbus Zoo, which is just up the mile from Cincinnati, they just successfully trained an 11-month-old cub for voluntary blood sampling. Wow. Um, so these animals are really smart. So we can train them to do things in captivity. We can get, you know, serial longitudinal samples from them in captivity and kind of see what their hormone fluctuations look like throughout the year um, and measure, you know, what factors might be impacting their different hormone concentrations. Um, so it's, it's awesome. You know, the North American zoos all collaborate. So I work with, you know, every zoo in the U.S. Mm -hmm. that has polar bears and um, they participate in various studies and send us samples all the time um, just to learn more about the physiology of this species. Right. Um, so right now, our, our main projects here at Crew is um, we are trying to develop assisted reproductive technologies for the females. Mm. Uh, so right now there's a shortage of males in the population, in the captive population. So right now we have a handful of females that are of prime reproductive age, but they don't have a male to breed with. Mm -hmm. um, so a few years ago we developed a method for collecting and cryopreserving semen samples from male bears. Um, so we're growing a kind of a polar bear sperm bank here at Crew, but we can take that sperm, we can use it to then inseminate females that don't have a male to breed with to give them a chance at having cubs. Um, so right now, you know, I, if a human female needed to go through fertility treatments or infertility mm. treatments, you know, she could go to her doctor and the doctor would say, you know, we need to give you these hormone injections on these days and then we'll perform an artificial insemination, you know, on day three, whatever time. Um, we don't have that knowledge base yet with polar bears so right. we don't know exactly what hormones are going to make them come into estrus or which dosages will make them ovulate and then when do we perform the artificial insemination relative to the ovulation inducing agent right. um these are all big questions that we're, we're trying to work out the kinks for it so we're you know we're right now we've performed um i think a total of about 12 artificial inseminations have been performed and there are some other groups trying this as well um and but unfortunately none have yet resulted in cubs um, but every time we do one of these, we're learning a little bit more and we're hopefully tweaking our techniques a little bit and optimizing procedures and getting better and better. And, you know, hopefully one day we might have some success with this artificial insemination. Um, you know, we still have a little bit of the ways to go. Yeah. And that's, again, the going back to what you opened up with talking about learning with domestics, then trying to apply that to exotics. It is tough. It doesn't just work. It is yeah. tough, especially yeah. with a, you know, what's the domestic model for a polar bear? Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't have one. So maybe, no. maybe mink might, might work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I always joke that I need a little black bear farm to kind yeah. of run my studies on, but you know, I don't see that happening <laughs> no. anytime soon. No, I don't think Sensi's going to uh, 
support you on that one. Yeah, but it was like, right. you know, and in a future pod for soon, we'll probably talk Blackfooted Ferret. That, mm-hmm. that's such an amazing story that the reason I think we were successful with them is we had domestic ferrets that we learned right. on, right? Same thing with Przewalski horse. We had domestic horses. Yeah, we don't have right. a domestic polar bear. <laughs> so, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really happen that way. Um, so just for our listeners, you know, I I don't want to take up too much of your time because you are busy and you're you are fighting the fight, the the good fight. But how can we support you? How how can listeners go and and support what you do? Uh, well, we can you can directly support the research that we do here at Crew, the polar bear research specifically. So we have a a challenge right now. We're trying to raise seventy thousand dollars by the end of the year. Um, although we will will accept donations at any time of year. But if you just go to the Cincinnati Zoo's website and look up the polar bear challenge, you can donate right there. So yeah, we uh would definitely provide the links on on our website, and we're gonna tweet all this out. And then anything else like Cincinnati Zoo has that cool palm oil app, right? So anything else you guys have yeah, that so- we should be aware of? Um, we have Fiona. Yeah, she's very popular. She's like person of the year, right? Or uh, mammal of the year. I think I think she is. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, she's a little ham. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, in terms of like apps, no, we don't have any. I mean, we have an awesome cell phone recycling program here. Okay, good. Um, so, so coltan is a mineral that's used to make cell phones, and coltan can only be mined in gorilla habitat. Um, so by recycling your cell phones or keeping your cell phones longer and not buying as many cell phones, you're actually helping to save um, gorillas and all the species that live, live in those areas. So Dr. Aaron Curry, thank you so much for spending uh, time with us and sharing what you're doing. Thanks for having me, Chris. Oh, we're going to have you again. I guarantee it. So uh, come visit me very soon or I'll be, or I'll get dressed and I will uh, meet you up in Churchill when you go. (laughs) For sure. Next time. All right. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Chris. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.